Chapter 21 Chief Inspector Coming back to the West Midlands as a newly promoted Chief Inspector in June 2014 was quite a nerve-wracking experience. I'd been away from the mainstream force for four years and lots of things had changed. Like every other force in the country, it was in the middle of trying to cut costs and make many difficult decisions. PCSO redundancies, the closure and sale of police stations and other real estate, and a wholesale transformation of the organisation were on the cards. It wasn't a comfortable or happy time to be in policing. The rank of Chief Inspector is a big jump from Inspector. It's the lowest rung on the senior management ladder, so Chief Inspectors are generally at the beck and call of everyone above them in the hierarchy, as well as having a large number of people to manage and motivate. It's also a stepping stone to the rank of superintendent, which is quite a big pay jump. However, chief inspectors get paid more or less the same as inspectors, which is a bit of a nonsense considering how much more responsibility they have. I found out that my specific posting was to be a detective chief inspector in the intelligence department colloquially referred to as DCI Intel. This came as something of a surprise to me because I'd never been in an intelligence department before and I had no idea whatsoever what I was supposed to be doing. They sent me on a week-long strategic intelligence managers course with the College of Policing. And as with many courses in policing, it bore almost no relevance or resemblance to the job they ended up doing. It was a generic course to be delivered to managers from lots of different forces across the country. As every force is entirely different, they all do different things, and thus making the course a bit pointless. I landed back at headquarters and met the rest of the management team in the intelligence department, who were more or less a good bunch. I was told that I'd be running the homicide intelligence team and the local intelligence teams on the eastern side of the force. So it was going to be a bit of a mixed bag. So, what does an intelligence officer actually do? Well, according to the College of Policing, the intelligence officer develops and evaluates intelligence, making an assessment of the threat, risk, harm, vulnerabilities and opportunities which exist, and identifying gaps. They manage the dissemination of the assessment or intelligence product, support reactive, proactive investigations and or crimes in action and provide advice on appropriate tactical options to support policing priorities. That's a bit of a mouthful. So I tend to describe it as gathering, assessing and sharing information that helps people make better decisions about what to do. The Homicide Intelligence Team, unsurprisingly, supported murder investigations from the moment the organisation responded to a new murder all the way through to, hopefully, a conviction of a defendant at court. After a murder was committed, the team would immediately start to pull together an intelligence document that would answer many questions common to every murder. For example, what has happened as far as we know? Who is the victim? What do we know about them? Where did it happen? And what did we know about these locations? 
Were there any witnesses and what are they saying? Is there any obvious suspect? And what do we know about them? Why do we think this murder happened? As the investigation progresses, the intelligence requirement changes according to the needs of the senior investigating officer. And the intelligence team would serve the needs of that officer. So, for example, if the investigation identified some potential suspects, we might acquire data relating to their current mobile phones. The intelligence officers and analysts would use clever software to see if there had been any contact with the victim or other suspects. They would try to find out when that contact took place and where they were before, during and after the time of the murder. They might overlay this phone usage data with a movement of vehicles that were known or suspected as being used by the perpetrators at that time. The intelligence team would build up an excellent understanding of what had happened and when, where and who was involved. This would become an evidential product that would be used to justify the arrest and charge of suspects. And when added to other evidence, such as fingerprints, DNA, CCTV and eyewitness testimony, all these pieces of the jigsaw would form the basis of the prosecution case at court. It was a super interesting job and the people who do it are very good at it. My team were incredibly busy because the West Midlands had one of the highest murder rates in the UK and they were usually juggling a great many cases simultaneously and various stages of investigation. Many of these murders were linked to drugs and organised crime in some way and there were often overlaps between several different murder investigations over a longer period of time so it could get very complicated and confusing very quickly. The other bit of my job was quite different and involved running two local intelligence teams on the eastern side of the force. These teams were based on a particular police command unit and they provided the intelligence support for all day-to-day -day policing activities. They would support the daily and monthly tasking and coordinating processes chaired by the local superintendent and they would prepare briefing documents on a wide range of local issues. Many of the intelligence officers had been on these command units for a long time, so they knew the area and the local villains very well. A big part of my job was to work closely with my senior counterparts in these places to make sure that they had what they needed and that everyone was happy. Often it was as much about managing their unrealistic expectations because they'd asked for something unnecessary or something that should be done by someone else. I soon realised that the intelligence department got involved in literally everything going on in the force from some of the most trivial issues to the most serious and everything in between. It was a good place for someone like me who'd done a lot of different jobs over the years and there was very little that I hadn't dealt with at some point. However, as frontline resources became more and more squeezed, the force began to become more stressed and every department started to feel the pinch. I described earlier how the entirety of the police intelligence function was conducted by the old-style collators with their thousands of little cards when I first joined. Over the following years and right up to when I retired in 2019, I never saw any intelligence system or team that was even remotely as effective as a good collator's office. Despite, or maybe because of, 
all the new computerized intelligence systems. So why was this the case? I think the main reason for this subsequent lack of efficiency was that the intelligence process back then was really, really simple. There was none of the fancy jargon that later came to dominate the intelligence world. For me, it all started to go a bit wrong with the National Intelligence Model, or NIM. NIM was brought into policing nationally in 1999 and it sought to professionalise what until that time had been a rather vague, make-it-up-as-you-go-along approach to police intelligence. This was great in theory, but the problem with NIM was that it overcomplicated everything and confused many people. Rather than a couple of super knowledgeable, crusty old cops who'd been in the job for decades, you now had an office full of people who lacked that knowledge and experience and whose job was largely to administer a computer system and maintain Excel spreadsheets. The process for submitting intelligence became time-consuming and bureaucratic, and the net result was that officers just didn't bother. They found that when they did bother, they would invariably have things sent back to them because they hadn't filled in a particular field on the computer system or they'd got someone's date of birth wrong. Policing language soon became filled with all sorts of weird and wonderful terminology relating to NIM that no one understood or really cared about. Terms like strategic assessments and problem profiles, subject profiles, market profiles were used everywhere. Like any new discipline, the system attracted more than its fair share of evangelical zealots who insisted that everyone sticks slavishly to NIM doctrine. Very quickly, local intelligence teams became the unloved members of the police family. Most operational officers and detectives accused them of eating like an elephant and shitting like a mouse. In other words, they demanded a hell of a lot from everyone and didn't give much back. By the time I took charge of the local intelligence teams in the West Midlands, common sense had returned to some extent. We produced only one type of document for decision makers, an intelligence assessment. This could be an assessment of anything, depending on what the requirement was. It might be a local gang issue, a spike in burglaries, a shooting, or a problem nightclub. It was written in a standard way, regardless of what the subject was, and the document was created in such a way that it could be given to someone who knew nothing whatsoever about that issue, and very quickly they would have all the information that they needed to plan the next course of action. However, the damage had already been done to the police intelligence world. Ultimately, all operational cops want to know the following information. Is the person standing in front of me or driving the car that I've stopped believed to be involved in crime or a potential risk to me? If they are, what sort of crime or violence have they committed? Who do they hang about with? And where do they currently live if I need to get hold of them again? It's really not complicated, but in my opinion, NIM overcomplicated everything. One very good thing that did come out of NIM, however, was the monthly tactical tasking and coordinating group process, where the local superintendent would meet with key sergeants and inspectors to set priorities for the coming month and review progress against the previous month's priorities. This was always a very business-like meeting, usually lasting a couple of hours, 
which would look at key issues and identify the most prolific offenders to be vigorously targeted by patrolling officers and proactive crime teams over the coming days and weeks. A vast amount of crime is driven by drug addiction and committed by a relatively small number of people. These prolific and priority offenders, PPOs, became the focus of a great deal of policing activity. The aim was to either divert them into substance abuse treatment or arrest them and have them remanded in custody and convicted. We were under no illusion that putting someone in prison was going to change them, but when a criminal is in prison, at least they're not creating new victims. Anyway, what I mean to say is that I miss those wads of little collator's index cards. Following an internal reorganisation, our department lost several posts at all ranks and I find myself being responsible for all 10 geographical intelligence teams across the force. I had four teams in Birmingham alongside units in Coventry, Solihull, Wolverhampton, Walsall, Sandwell and Dudley, which meant that I was responsible for 10 inspectors, 20 sergeants and about 120 intelligence officers and analysts. In hindsight, this period in my career was a bit of a blur and I spent a lot of time shuttling all over the force, sorting out problems and working with 10 different local senior management teams. Still, it was exciting and I got to know a lot of people across the entire force. My life was incredibly busy at this time. Happily, I'd remarried and my wife Kay and I had two babies in quick succession. Well, more accurately, she had them and I watched her have them. I was therefore juggling 10 geographically dispersed teams before coming home to two children under three years old who were still in nappies. My teenage son was doing his GCSEs and I was also driving up and down to Sheffield helping my daughter with university life. Then one day I realised that I had less than five years to go until I reached 30 years service and was entitled to retire. Whilst five years is still quite a long time, Everyone I knew who had been in this situation had told me that it would go so quickly. I started to give some thought to life after the police, and I decided that I needed to pick up some new skills that would help me make that transition. I'd always been interested in technology, and my time in the CTU had exposed me to a lot of innovative technology and the cash-rich CT community had had access to. However, Mainstream policing had been badly neglected and left behind. One of our chief officers had a national responsibility for internet investigations and another had responsibility for cybercrime, so I offered to do all their work for them. Gradually, I became very knowledgeable about using technology to investigate crime. I did a lot of work building up a strong network of people like me in other forces around the country. This is an issue for policing that's worth spending some time talking about because I think it's one of the reasons the crime detection rate is so abysmally low. When I joined the police, and for the first 20 years, crime investigation didn't change that much. We established what had happened, how it had happened, and to whom it had happened, and then tried to find out who we thought was responsible. We took witness statements, and examined the scene of crime for forensic material that may have been left behind. For a long time, 
The only vaguely technical information that we had been interested in was CCTV footage, or maybe call records from landlines or mobile phones. We would gather intelligence, identify a suspect, and arrest them. We would search their home, business or car for evidence linked to the crime, and take fingerprints or saliva to compare with marks or bodily fluids found at the scene or on the victim. It was a very predictable, standard process that we followed for pretty much every crime. The only difference being the degree of thoroughness depending on the seriousness of the investigation. For example, if your car got broken into, we would swab it for DNA and recover samples of broken glass to compare with shards recovered from a suspect's clothing. That could be it. However, for a murder, we would spend a full week exhaustively examining every aspect of the crime scene in minute detail and taking hundreds of forensic samples from dozens of places. Gradually, over time, technology in common usage began to accelerate in scale, speed and complexity. Mobile phones morphed into smartphones holding vast amounts of data with complex security denying easy access. Home computers that previously had the disk memory of a few hundred megabytes quickly began to hold many gigabytes and now routinely store several terabytes. The types of data, apps and documents contained on PCs, laptops, tablet computers and smartphones exploded in terms of variety and complexity. In addition, today very little data is stored on a physical device. It's more likely to be stored somewhere in the cloud computing data centre based in the United States or Ireland. The internet created an almost infinite number of opportunities for committing crime, while sat in the comfort of your own home without ever seeing your victim. Social media platforms, gaming platforms and dating sites became the hunting grounds of choice for rapists and child molesters. Whilst eBay and Gumtree made selling stolen goods or committing fraud child's play. Data privacy issues drove the adoption of end-to-end -end encryption and criminals and terrorists quickly embraced these technologies which made it much harder for law enforcement to understand and infiltrate criminal conspiracies. Technology is now a key facilitator for almost every type of crime. The days of having to feed your drug habit by breaking into someone's home and stealing their telly are becoming a distant memory. Drug dealers use encrypted apps to run their business and use young kids to deliver drugs to punters with very little chance of being caught. Knowing where to find evidence is challenging enough, but extracting it from a device, analysing it to make sense of it and presenting it in a way that tells a story to a lawyer or a jury is an entirely different matter. Each of these stages now requires fairly specialist knowledge, software and hardware, all of which were and still are in short supply in the policing world. Complex crime, murders and terrorist investigations now hoover up a staggering volume and variety of digital evidence from hundreds of devices and sources. And the number of those sources and amount of data is growing almost every month. That's the bad news. The good news is that it's nearly impossible to commit a serious crime without leaving some sort of electronic trail 
that skilled and dogged investigators can follow. It's become a rapidly evolving arms race as the police try to keep pace with new tech. For example, the explosion of household devices which are now connected to the internet, known as the Internet of Things, can tell a story to an investigation. Investigators now routinely build up an evidential case from GPS watches, sat-navs, Wi-Fi routers, dash cams, fancy doorbells and even fridges. Remote-controlled home heating systems can even be interrogated for information that may be useful. Sadly, the police service in the UK has failed to properly keep up with the technology that is necessary to investigate crime and has relied for too long on a small number of in-house experts who quickly find themselves overwhelmed and can usually only support the most serious investigations. Many of these experts then get lured away from policing by banks or private companies offering much better pay. Fundamentally, the service hasn't made enough progress in helping the average frontline officer investigate digital crime in the past 10 years another unhappy outcome of cuts to police budgets. In fairness, however, the service itself and the Home Office have been very wasteful. Vast amounts of money have been squandered on national digital programmes that have delivered very little. The 43-4 structure in England and Wales has also made things even messier, as everyone is doing things differently and buying systems that don't work with existing systems or with neighbouring forces. This has created a horribly tangled ball of technological wiring that will take years to unravel. Flagship programmes designed to create a new national intelligence database for policing and a new emergency services communication network are now years overdue and many, many millions of pounds over budget and there are still very few signs that they will be successfully delivered anytime soon. In 2018, the Home Affairs Select Committee released a report entitled Policing for the Future. In compiling the report, the committee took evidence from a wide range of witnesses, including the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Cressida Dick, who told them that the service could not go on dealing with rising demand and greater complexity forever, without having to make some hard choices. You make choices either about reducing the scope of the mission or taking more risk about what you do. Nearly three years on, the mission, i.e. to try to do anything and everything, remains the same, whilst demand and complexity has continued to grow. The report went on to state Police forces' investment in and adoption of new technology is, quite frankly, a complete and utter mess. Forces are facing rapidly evolving threats from criminals who exploit new technology in advanced and innovative ways, yet their own technological solutions are not always up to the task. There are enormous opportunities for policing, including greater use of artificial intelligence and the exploitation of data, but the service is often failing to take advantage of them. We believe that the biggest failing in this area is not the level of funding, but rather the complete lack of coordination and leadership on upgrading technology over very many years.
This is sadly letting down police officers who are struggling to do their jobs effectively with out-of-date technology. It's astonishing that in 2018, a police force still struggles to get crucial real-time information from each other, and that officers are facing frustration and delays on a daily basis. Almost nothing has changed since 2018, and arguably the situation is a lot worse because of the need for the police to operate in a more complex environment. Whilst the technology to investigate digitally enabled crime is still poor, some new kit has made life a bit better for police officers. Nationally, there's been the widespread adoption of body-worn video for frontline officers, and this has made a big difference in terms of protecting officers from false claims of assault or misconduct. In fact, a study by Cambridge University in 2016 found that complaints against officers had fallen by 93% since the adoption of body-worn video, which says a lot about the merit of many of the complaints made against officers previously. In the past, it was always the word of people being arrested against the word of officers, which made it difficult to prove or disprove their version of events. However, there have been increasing calls by rank-and-file officers for police video footage to be released to the media in order to refute biased, and selectively edited footage from mobile phones claiming to show the police acting oppressively. There have been a number of high-profile instances recently where such footage has made its way onto national TV and the officers concerned have been unable to respond or show the full context of the incident. This is deeply demoralising for frontline police officers who now worry that getting into a confrontational situation in a public place will result in them being splashed all over social media and the TV, with all the vile intimidation, trolling and risk that this creates for officers and their families. It's unacceptable and unreasonable to expect people to go to work to do a difficult job only to find themselves in that situation. People wouldn't be allowed to start filming nurses and doctors trying to do their job or social workers trying to engage with a family in crisis. So why is it acceptable for police officers to have to put up with it? Try to imagine for a moment how it would feel if you went to work, everything you did was video recorded, everything you said in a car was recorded, and every time you got into a difficult situation or conversation, someone got out their mobile phone and started filming you. It should be a civil or criminal offence to film a police officer in such a situation and then publicly display the footage anywhere other than in the context of making a formal complaint or inside a civil or criminal court. This would ensure that police officers can be held accountable, but at the same time, their privacy and human rights are respected. Another significant development in 2018 was the introduction of mobile devices that could access most of the police systems used by operational officers. Typically, this includes command and control logs, which officers can now update immediately rather than having to wait and pass details across the radio, which would then have to be typed up by a control room operator. Officers can access all of the criminal intelligence that they need if they're going to arrest someone at an address or if they stop someone in a car who's refusing to cooperate. The handheld devices in the West Midlands were pretty good. 
and they included software that alerted officers to high-risk issues, wanted people or gang activity if their device had detected via GPS that the officer had moved into a particular location. The introduction of Skype video conferencing in 2016 also made a big difference to the working lives of the police. It massively reduced the amount of time spent travelling to meetings and it enabled us to discuss critical incidents by pulling together the key people into a call very quickly. Prior to that, everyone would have been dragged away from their jobs and made to travel up to headquarters from all over the force to have face-to-face -face strategic meetings with assistant chief constables. As a mission support superintendent, I chaired the daily force tasking meetings via Skype. Senior managers would join that meeting from every department and geographic command unit in the force. Meanwhile, Westminster Police was still on a 5-2 diet, thanks to ever deeper cuts to police budgets. At this time, Theresa May, by some horrible twist of fate, and just when police officer thought it couldn't get any worse, became our new Prime Minister. Barely a week went by without news arriving about the latest efficiency saving that would mean the loss of jobs, more police stations closed, and the British public put in an increased risk of violence and criminality. Ultimately, trying to police Britain during the years of austerity had become very bleak indeed. <laughs>